Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. Today is a very, very special episode, number 100. Yes, 100 shows. So I'm feeling a lot of love, a lot of gratitude, especially to all of our listeners. We have reached over 30,000 downloads, and I appreciate everyone that takes the time and really loves the show, checks in week in, week out. All of this, of course, would not have been possible without my original co-host, Simon Blair. He came up with the name. He said, let's just call it the Coaching Podcast. He's a customer experience service coach. And together, he brought that business perspective. I was heavily involved in high-performance tennis coaching at that time. And together, we would talk about our guests, the responses to, of course, our top four questions. The Vegemite question, which leads into your best coaching moment or your worst coaching moment. The sliding doors question, what makes a great coach in a maximum of three words? And what question do you have of the coaching podcast? That's the format. And it is the format that we will continue to use because you know what? It works. Then Simon handballed the show over to me and I've taken on one business coach and one sports coach. Obviously, my background is high performance tennis, so lots of tennis coaches there. And I've been releasing episodes for over a year now, every single Tuesday. So we are going to take a week off next week. My sister, who is a horse whisperer, she's a teacher, uh, has been doing helping me out with some editing. And so we're going to take one week off. So as we move into season five, wow, so 100 episodes, season five. So thank you to you for listening, for sharing, for emailing me, for writing reviews online. All those little things help. So tag a coach, tag a friend. There's so much we can learn from the business world and the sports world, which is the purpose of the show, to be able to amalgamate and have insights from those two different coaching perspectives. And sometimes they're the same, 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 but different as we would say down under. So big shout out to all of you who take the time to be open to learning from the different worlds of coaching to be able to add to your own coaching toolkit and become the best coach that you can be. Our guest today is Kyle Lacroix from Sets Consulting. Now, Kyle was our very first guest. So on episode number two, he was somebody I interviewed and I decided to have him back for episode 100. It was felt significant to be able to interview him, also to show how coaches change, how they evolve, what makes a great coach when he answered those questions back in 2016 to today, of course, are different. Uh, but there are so many similarities as well. So thank you to Kyle for being our guest today on the show. I was reflecting on some of my favorite episodes and actually I was there were so many it was hard to pick, but uh, ones especially from Claude Silva, the Chief Heart Officer from VaynerMedia, and what I've been able to now meet up with her and I ran the Empower Hour for her company in New York. That was amazing because of the coaching podcast. Patrick Moritoglu's episodes had the most number of downloads. There's so many insights. Again, there's so many wonderful episodes that have really 
helped me become a better coach with my interviewing skills. I used to say ums and ahs and you know a lot more back in the early days. And so now I'm improving as a podcast host and I'm sure I will continue to improve as will the show. And once again, 100 episodes from me to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As we know, listening is the top three response in my research of over 500 coaches with what makes a great coach. I'll continue to gather that data and that research to bring you the best possible and the latest information on how to become the best coach that you can be. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it and enjoy this episode. Good, everybody, and welcome to the coaching podcast. My name's Emma Doyle, and I have such an honor and a pleasure interviewing today not only someone I can call a friend over the years, uh, but somebody who was our very first guest ever on the coaching podcast that we released back in the end of 2016. When Carl reached out, Carl Lacroix, that's who I'm interviewing today, he said, hey, Em, wouldn't it be a great idea to revisit how far we both have come? I mean, we're talking five, six years. Carl, well, just welcome to the coaching. Welcome back to the coaching podcast. How are you? Emma, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. It's an honor and a privilege to be on here again. I was your first guest and I'm, I'm happy to be invited back. But uh, it's just, you know, th this whole this whole idea of a podcast. I mean, you started it back in 2016. I remember our interview specifically because it was held in Indian Wells. Uh, and it, it was just such a great idea. And, you know, but it was 2016. And so much has happened since 2016. The world has changed. Obviously, our lives have changed. And as coaches, obviously, we've had to change. So it, it just seemed it just seemed so fitting to kind of catch up and, and circle back and, and kind of compare notes to the last six years of our life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of my favorite things about the podcast, actually, is just to have a chat about coaching. Yeah, to do it with you is uh is something that I always cherish. I'm so excited about this, this interview. It hasn't even happened yet, you know, when you're like a, a kid in a candy store. Anyway, uh, look, let's kick it off. I have now I have re-listened to your response to the Vegemite question, but uh off air, you told me you've done a bit of research. So listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna just circle back to it again. You said you loved it all those years ago, but the mm -hmm. research you've done, I can't wait to hear about it. Vegemite, you either love it or you strongly dislike it. What's your take? Yeah. So when you first asked me this question, um, I, I, I was being truthful and honest. And I, I, I do like Vegemite, but I, I like Vegemite maybe because I've had a, a more positive first impression with it. And and because of that, I think that's that's such a game changer when your first impression was a positive one. But I've listened to every podcast since and you've asked that question. And some people, usually the people from the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia, have said, yes, it's, I'm all for it. And everyone else has, has said, nay. Um, and I thought about your question. I've kept thinking about it. And it's honestly a question that's kept me up at night for the past six years. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, because that. <laughs> that's, that's quite all right. Sleep is overrated. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's more than just a question about whether you like Vegemite or not. This question touches on, on the mental and the memories and it touches on emotions and it touches on, on the physiological duties of the human body. And so, you know, 
you start to think about food as it's such a, a memory trigger, right? We always remember the, the, the first time we tasted this or the first time we tasted that or when we smell, you know, coffee in the morning, we can already start to taste it. And, and it just has such a strong trigger for our emotions. And for Vegemite, for a lot of people, that's what it is. And for people from Australia, they grew up maybe in a family, maybe their parents had Vegemite. So because it was just a natural thing. And so when people open up a jar of Vegemite, they can kind of look back to their childhood and they can think about the first time they had Vegemite and their parents, you know, spreading it on a piece of toast. And so that was so strong. And so obviously most of the guests you've had on from Australia, they're, they're usually pretty for Vegemite. But also when we look at, when we look at the physiological response, it's also cultural too. Whereas I feel that most people in the Western hemisphere, especially in North America, we have an issue with portion control. And so we always put pounds and pounds of food and gobs of butter on all of our stuff. And the problem with Vegemite is it's not really meant for that. So every time I see an American, like, like I'll, I'll watch, I'll watch a, a tennis channel, ESPN, and they have their commentators and every Australian Open, it's always like the obligatory, hey, let's try Vegemite. But then what they do is they take the knife in and they pull out like six pounds of Vegemite and they spread it on the toast. And that's just not how you Vegemite. So when, when you use only that, it's obviously going to overpower your senses. Um, so I just think it's also a cultural thing where a little dab will do you. You don't need a whole lot. Oh. And I think, if more, I think if more Americans tried Vegemite and they only gave a very small, small portion of it, that flavor is enough to take over. So you don't need that. In terms of the, phil, the, the, the physiological aspect of it, so the sense of taste is actually in the brain. It's not in the tongue. And so when humans are approached with something that they're about to eat, and there's a little bit of fear and trepidation about that, um, I always go by the two-bite rule, and here's why. Because when you're about to taste something that you're not sure of or that if you're with a unadventurous eater, which fortunately I am not, but my wife happens to be, uh, there's going to be a little bit of cautiousness. And when the brain senses that, the brain will actually send a signal to the taste buds to say, hey, you might want to take this bite off. Go ahead and, 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 and step aside and just kind of let it, let it happen and don't get too overpowered by it. So the first bite of something when you're unsure of isn't usually the best judge of character for that taste. So instead, I do what I call a two-bite rule. If you don't like something, you have to take two bites of it, not one, because that first bite, you're not really going to taste anything anyways. You think you're tasting it because that's what the brain is telling you, but you're not actually tasting it on the first bite. It's usually the second bite where the brain sort of relaxes and says, okay, the first bite's over. It's fine. It hasn't killed us yet. So, uh, but that's, that's kind of my whole Vegemite thing. And this is, this has been six years of waiting to get back on this podcast to share this with you because I just, I, I can sleep easy now. And I, th I think as coaches, tapping into something like uh, the sense of smell mm -hmm. that relates to taste as well is something we could do more of to trigger positive memories in tennis to get people prepared for a match, you know, the smell of freshly cut grass, mm. uh, you know, to enhance the visualisation experience. That's where I went with, with a part of what you said. And the other part of what, what you said that I think we need to do more often is take away sight. 
the minute we take away the sight and the smell of Vegemite and I just dabbed it with a slab of butter, if we're going to do a slab of anything, let's do a slab of butter and dab on the Vegemite, mm. I think more people would like it. I'm, I love that you've got the science behind it. You you just uh, one of a kind and we're, we're not even at the first question. I'm going to flip <laughs> it today. I'm going to flip it, Kyle. It is uh, cilantro, otherwise known in Australia as coriander. Uh, you either love it or you, it is quite polarizing as well. So it, it's a pattern break question as, as as well. But you knew that already. What what's your take on cilantro? Yeah. So over here we call it cilantro. Uh, it's put on a lot of dishes, uh, especially in kind of pan Mediterranean cuisine. You know, coriander, cilantro, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it does have its place. Some chefs actually refuse to use it because of because of their customers. Other chefs don't really care because it's like, hey, this is my dish. I'm going to do whatever I want with it, and you're going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find that most people, when you, when you do put cilantro on a dish, um, they don't really notice it until, of course, you tell them afterwards, and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's cilantro. I don't like cilantro. All right, so you know the next question, which is, of course, let's take a snapshot, actually, more specifically in the last six years uh, from your last interview. Could you share with us? Uh, both a coaching moment that stands out and one also on the flip side that didn't go well, but it's specifically about the lessons. What are, what are the lessons that our coach listeners can take away from two of those experiences that you've had? So let, let's start with, with the positives. Uh, you know, coaching, coaching moment I had, I've been really lucky to have a lot of them in my career. So I would say my coaching moment I have is every morning when I get to wake up and I get to do what I love, uh, my students come to me, my clients, my students, my kids, my adults, they all come to me and they share their two greatest commodities, their time and their money. And that's the greatest compliment I could ever receive. So a short answer is my coaching moment happens every single day. Every single lesson I have, I get to share my wisdom and then in return, if we sit down for a quick break, they get to share some of their wisdom with me. I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I think I've learned just as much from my students as they have from me over the years. And those are always the best lessons. And I have such a wide array of students from all walks of life. And I always ask them more so about, you know, not just tennis questions. I ask them life questions and how they got to where they are and business. And I mean, it, it's just fascinating. But for me, my coaching moment is just, Every day I get to coach and I get to do what I love. And it's just, it's so exciting. I mean, I, I really have to pinch myself. Mm-hmm. And you still feel that way? You still, you, you answered very similar last time when I was mm-hmm. re-listening to that episode. Um, how do you, how do you keep that? Like, you know, I know not every day it's, it's as coaching can be a grind for some mm-hmm. people out there listening. What, what's maybe one quick tip or one, one thing that you do to, continue that passion i think i think that's that's a pretty fair question because i'm I'm sure i did answer something like that uh the first time but you know for me it's just having an attitude of gratitude it's just realizing that i've had a lot of other jobs other than tennis people think i've just been in tennis my entire life i haven't uh i've grown up in the restaurant industry which is not glamorous um i used to be a zookeeper i picked up elephant dung in the summertime at bush gardens which is not pleasant I dare anyone to try that job. The elephants are amazing animals, but picking up after them was not an amazing job. Um, I've been a radio DJ. 
Uh, I was absolutely horrible at that. I only lasted about nine months. But, um, you know, for me, it's, it's just being able to give back to a sport I love. I, anytime I have a rough day, I always go back to what made me do this in the first place. What made me go down this path? And again, it comes back to memories and being a kid and playing against the wall and being out there for five, six hours, just hitting against the wall and pretending I was, you know, playing at Wimbledon against Forrest Becker, Stefan Enberg. And I can tell you in the history of tennis, no one has lost more Wimbledon finals than me to the wall. I think I've lost like 57, 58 Wimbledon finals. So, I mean, but it's one of those things where you go back to what got you started. And then when you're having a rough day, instead of starting the next day back in sixth gear, you go back to first gear and you try to bring that, that childhood enthusiasm back. And, you know, I, I will say it's not as easy for everyone as I say it's as easy for me. But, you know, when I was born, I was born with a very rare disease called enthusiasm. And so that, that, that certainly helps. But, you know, enthusiasm can be contagious. So I always try to, I always try to be optimistic. I always try to be upbeat. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I have rough days. I have long days. I have days that I am frustrated. But at the end of the day, I chose this for a reason because I feel like I'm really, really good at it. Uh, not to sound arrogant or conceited, but I, I feel like I, I do have a gift and, and this is my gift. And if I can help more people, even if it's just one person, I've really done my duty. So I think over the last six years since our since the first podcast, it's it's I have evolved as a coach. But in terms of my my core principles and my values and who I am as a person, I don't think that will ever change. I can always change as a coach. But as a person, I really like to stay the same because that's how people know me. That's how people fell in love with me. So I'm going to stick with what's working for me. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I remember last time re-listening to your first episode, you were talking about how just game changes every six months. So as coaches, we have to continue to evolve. And and, uh, I really love that. What about on the flip side? What about a coaching moment that hasn't gone well? And what are the lessons? So a coaching moment that hasn't gone well, probably my biggest fear, or I should say my biggest mistake and regret of, of coaching. It wasn't just one particular incident. It was, it was over the course of a summer. Um, I was working at an academy in Florida um, with uh, a name synonymous with a very famous Australian coach, Harry Hopman. And I was a uh, Harry Hopman tennis coach and, I came in as, you know, I think like 19, 20 years old. And I was just, you know, all thrust and no vector, as they say. And um, it was all about, you know, kicking the tires and lighting the fires. I was ready to go. I was, I was, I thought I was Harry Hopman. Um, and clearly I wasn't. And unfortunately, I, I used my, my presence, which I know this is a podcast, so people aren't going to be able to see me per se. Uh, but I'm six foot six, 240 pounds. I'm a big guy. I look very intimidating. I have a bald head. Um, people are usually fairly scared of me when they first see me, but I'm really a big teddy bear. But unfortunately, when I was younger, I used my physical presence to sort of bully to get what I wanted. Um, I don't know if I was necessarily doing it intentionally, but I definitely was conscious of it. And I would use that to get the students to do the drills I wanted to do this, to do that. And I really just kind of lost the sense of, 
of what being a coach truly is. I just thought being a coach was just being, you know, a hard ass. And, and I, I thought being a coach was, was, you know, just making my players train so hard that they didn't really want to come back for the afternoon. And, and I really kind of had a, a hardcore mentality about it, which fortunately over the years, I've certainly softened up. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's something I look back and I, I just absolutely cringe. I cringe because, you know, here was an opportunity to make a positive impact in, 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 a, in a kid's life. And, and maybe I, I, I didn't meet those expectations. Uh, but yeah, I, I was definitely no Harry Hotman at 19 or 20 years old. So mm-hmm. was it, was there just staying on that one? Was there mm-hmm. a moment when you realized, like, was there a sort of a, well, actually the sliding doors questions next <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so it's a two part question was, I'm wondering whether there was a moment where someone tapped you on the shoulder or did you come to your own self-awareness or did it happen over time with regards to what you just said? around this beautiful vulnerability and, and honesty. So thank you, first and foremost, for, for sharing that. And then part two of the question is, yeah, please share any sliding doors significant moment in, in your life. Um, Two-part question. Sure. So, you know, it's funny you touch on vulnerability because that's that that's the first thing we look for in others. It's the last thing we want to show in ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that that's always the hard thing. But for me... I think it was just more of a general evolution. It happened over time. It wasn't someone tapped me on the shoulder or someone did this or someone did that, or I just had this awakening. It just happened over time where I started to realize my physical presence could be used to my advantage, but it was not to take advantage of my students. And, and you know, it, it, was, it was just one of those things where I think it happened probably over the course of three or four years as I was going, because... I, I was good enough where the Saddlebrook invited me back and I was a Harry Hotman pro for about three and a half years and it was a great experience and they could see my, my evolution. Uh, I had conversations with, with Howard Moore, who's the director there and, you know, love Howard to death. I, I, I still talk to him. He's, he's just such a great mentor to me, but, you know, we, we've had conversations about that too. And, and he, he said, listen, I, I had to give you the benefit of the doubt because I could see what was there. I could see the potential. I believed in you. And it just had to come down to you evolving as a coach. Um, and he knew that was going to take time. So it's just something that that's just happened over time. And I started to become, uh, I started to develop my soft skills a little bit better. Uh, and, and that certainly helped. But so that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question, the sliding doors moment, um, Wow. I, I feel like, again, I, I've had I've had a few of these in my life, but one moment I've had that I think kind of started all of this was and I haven't I haven't told this story to, to really many people. I, I could probably count maybe on one hand how many people I've told this to. Um, well, we do well, have a fair few listeners these days. OK, by the way. <laughs> well, well, that, that that's fine. You know what? I think I think they, they deserve to hear this because I think this is. This is a big moment for me, and it, it was maybe an inspiration moment for those that, that could be listening. So back in 2004, I had graduated from college, and I had turned down three jobs that were, to many people, dream jobs. I turned down a full-time job at Saddlebrook, which at the time was like my dream job. I grew up 45 minutes away. I always dreamed about being like a Harry Hotman coach, and I did that as, uh, as a seasonal pro, but not full-time. I turned that down. Uh, there was a club in Philadelphia, Philly Cricket Club. 
gorgeous club, 24 grass courts. It was just like postcard type of club. Uh, I turned that down. There was a brand new facility in Grand Blanc, Michigan called Genesis Health Club. It was this big part of this whole health system, state of the art. Everything was indoors, just brand spanking new. Turned that down. Everyone thought I was crazy, and I probably was. But I ended up moving back home with my parents, uh, slept on the couch for a couple of weeks, and that really wasn't what they had envisioned for their child, their only child. And so I did something that I recommend no one ever does, which is I lied to my parents. I told them I got the job down in Boca Raton, which at the time I, I had been interviewing for, but they never gave me you know, a final answer because it was still new construction and things were being held up and it takes time. Um, but I told them I got the job in Boca Raton. So I packed up my four-door white Kia Sportage with my fuzzy dice on the mirror and my zebra seats. And I drove down to Boca Raton, Florida, which I did not know anyone. Um, I had no connections down there. Didn't know where I was going to stay. I had no money. So I ended up living in my car for about three weeks in a Walmart parking lot. I remember eating meals from the vending machine from just spare change that I had. Um, and during that time, I received a call from a buddy of mine that said, hey, a big time prominent tennis coach is opening up an academy in your area. And maybe he's looking for someone. Maybe maybe you could reach out and, and call him and, and see what he can do. And at this time, I was so desperate. And I knew this, this tennis coach. At least I knew his name. I knew his history. I knew his track record. He definitely knew his stuff. He's one of the best of the best in terms of technical and, and tactical. And I thought it would be a dream to, to learn from, from this tennis coach. So I give the tennis coach a call and, you know, I kind of give him my whole spiel. Here's my name and here's where I went to school and here's what I did and here's my experience. And he kind of hesitated and he said, who's this again? And I went through the whole spiel again verbatim. And he just was kind of, I guess he was in the middle of lunch because I could hear him chewing his food like a chap, well, kind of like a cow chews on cud. And he just, he said, yeah, I just don't think you'll ever be good enough. I'm not going to hire you. I, I, I wouldn't really want you in my academy. I don't think you'll ever be good enough. And he hung up. And I'm the type of person where if you tell me I can't do something, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. And so that right there sparked me. And about, about two weeks later, I received a call from the general manager of a beautiful, brand new constructed club in Boca Raton saying that he would like to hire me. And that happened on October 18, 2004, at exactly 4.19 p.m. I remember the time because I remember getting the phone call and I was so nervous to answer because I thought he was going to tell me no that I let it go to voicemail. And so I remember that that time will forever be etched in my brain. Um, but he said that I, I, they would like to hire me. Uh, I got the job. And when can I be down there? And I told him I, I can be there in 10 minutes. But that moment right there, you know, all the, all, the, all the struggle, the sacrifice, I took a huge risk on a vision that did not exist yet. But I knew that it would exist eventually. And I had enough faith and confidence in my abilities that I could, I could go to a club like that and I could make it my own. And long story short, I've been there 17 years. 
Wow. Wow. That's a cool story. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. But yeah, I guess I'll never be good enough. Yeah. So there you go. The motivation is really interesting. And also the belief that you had in yourself. And I have to say, October 18 is my birthday. So oh. there's so many. <laughs> nice. So it was many. meant to be. It was meant to be. Meant to be. Meant to be. All right. In one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? The eagerness to learn, the eagerness to listen, the eagerness to adapt. And the key there is eagerness, not willingness, but eagerness. Mm. You know, a lot of people are willing to do stuff, but you have to really, you have to really want it. You have to, you have to be eager. You have to be open to listening to your students. You have to be open to learning not only from the students but learning from the situations and obviously you have to be willing and certainly eager to adapt because as a tennis coach as we've discussed on this podcast you have to adapt if, if you don't adapt uh, you're not going to be around for long in nature it's not the biggest strongest animal that survives it's the one most willing to adapt mm -hmm. absolutely and last time which i love as well about this question it's very much in the moment you said commitment, passion, and loyalty. So uh, any any reflection on uh, the change from 2016 to your answers today? I feel like I was so young in 2016, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think those things that I stated earlier are, are certainly crucial, especially to get you started, to get you in the door. And I, I think, I think when, when, when you spoke to me then, I was – still kind of in this world when that, you know, like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing exactly what I envisioned. And, and I, I was kind of more caught up, I guess, in the emotional side of the, of the passion and things like that. And I think those are great things to get you started. But what happens 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road when, you know, you see the same stuff, when, when you kind of get a little bit burnt out, that passion is going to dwindle and, and, all of these things. So what do you really need? And, and it's just a matter of taking a step back and, and learning. It's not what you necessarily need. It's what your students need. And I think, I think ego plays a big part in that. Not so much an ego in terms of, oh, I'm a coach. I was such a great player. But ego in terms of what's best for the student, what's not what's best for the coach. So is your player's practice time adequate for them not oh you want to move their practice up because you want to watch the big game later on on the tv um so just kind of ego gets involved a little bit i feel but again i think it, it's it's you know listening more talking less uh it's being open to adaptation being open to feedback you know how many people do we know are, are just not open to feedback they ask for it but they really don't want it and so feedback is obviously a gift as we know but um it, it's just one of those things where, again, you're going to change. And I think maybe if, if we had this interview one year after the first interview, my answers also would have been probably completely different too. I don't, but we, we are constantly changing. I mean, I am a different coach now than I was last week. And so if we, if we reconvene and reunite six years from now, you know, you can ask me the same questions and it could be completely different, but it's based on, it's based on life experience and, and I didn't have as much experience in 2016 as I do now. And you only get experience just after you needed it. So 
it's it, it's just something that you know we are constantly evolving we are constantly progressing and if we're not doing that then we're doing a severe disservice to our students and to the industry yeah yep yep couldn't agree more and the i'm really grateful as well for this opportunity to go back and listen to some of those <laughs> first episodes i can't tell you how much i've improved in the way that i ask the questions in my idiosyncratic words mm -hmm. and idiosyncratic words of other people and it, when you're editing it comes to your conscious awareness mm -hmm. with regards to podcast clarity and sound and the effectiveness of the way that we can share this message one to many which you and i are very grateful for but i think also the core of who you are and the energy that you bring what you said earlier, your, your core values and your inner being is still you. And the fact that the responses to what makes a great coach a, a different is, is wonderful. It's the other reason why my book is at, taking so long to finish, but it's <laughs> nearly there, I promise. But it is in five years of, of you know, six years actually of, of, da of the data and collecting this information so uh which i'll do forever as long as this podcast goes i'll continue to collate it all right the last official question is where we ask you to ask us a question what has kyle been thinking deeply about and what sparks your curiosity besides a million things can you can you narrow it into one question for our listeners to reflect on Oh my goodness. There's so many, th I mean, this, this in and of itself could be a whole nother podcast, right? Or a book or a book or a, book, or a movie or a trilogy, you yeah. know, watch out star Wars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think for me that the question I have to, to coaches is, is, is a very simple one. And I, I I've always asked this to coaches I meet and, and that is, how do you do what you do? Not why do you do what you do? I, I think I think why is, you know, kind of that cliche question, oh, find your why and this and that. And those are great things, but how? How do you get up every morning and do what you do? How do you handle a beginner player? How do you handle an advanced player? How do you handle your membership at your club? How do you handle an emergency situation? How do you handle the balance of of life and work. I mean, coaches are, we wear many hats. We are marketers, we're cheerleaders, we're psychologists, we're psychiatrists, we're Podcast. teachers, podcasters, absolutely, we're educators. So, and obviously all coaches have different answers, but I, I'm just fascinated to know how each and every coach out there, how they do what they do. Obviously the hours are long. Obviously we're not, we're not doing this because of a paycheck. We're doing this because we truly love what we do. And we want to share that with as many people as we do. But how is it that you do what you do? I'm just so fascinated because everyone has different experiences and they come from different cultures and walks of life. And, and I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating because there's so many different answers to this. It's not just one answer. There's so many different answers. And I just want to know all of them. So that's what kind of keeps me up at night right now is wondering how everyone else manages being a coach. Mm. Yep. Yep. And I, I love that analogy of wearing the different hats and knowing when to wear what hat, I think is something that I'm really fascinated about at the moment as 
you know, my career at the moment is really transitioning into workplace and business coaching. And uh, I was watching a video this morning about the five levels of questioning skills from surface level to facts, to thinking, to feeling, to inner questions was a nice little pyramid uh, that I was watching this morning on YouTube from Natalie Ashdown, the, the CEO of Open Door Coaching. And as coaches, it is something that I, that you know, is part of my core philosophy, asking questions. And you mentioned it earlier about what makes you happy is asking them and getting to know about their life. And that's when you feel like you can build that relationship to know, you know, how, how to coach, how you do it, basically. Uh, so I really am fascinated about that as, as well. Um, talk to me about your, what's your take on the use of questions and giving direct uh, statements to your student, you know, when they need a direct statement and when you think that we need to empower the decision making within them. How do, how do you find that balance? That's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the balance is everything. I, I, I think you need to really test the waters. You need to know how, how strong of a relationship do you have with your student? Is this the first lesson you're having with the new student? Is this a student you've been teaching for, for two or three years? You know, you kind of need to know that. So uh, it, it's, it's very specific and situational. But in terms of questions, you know, I, I really like to ask my students, you know, questions and kind of guide them along the way. And, and when you start to ask them some questions and they start to ponder and they can answer that question, you start to see the light bulb go off. And all of a sudden they not only know the answer, but now they feel much more empowered because they knew the answer and you didn't have to just bark it at them. And, you know, I, I feel like early on in our careers, as coaches, we tend to talk more and listen less. And I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's coming from a really good place because we are so passionate, because we want to try to give our students as much knowledge and information as possible. We want to give everything we know in that half an hour, hour lesson. And it's just so overwhelming to them. And it's paralysis by analysis. And the student has to take a break and say like, oh my goodness, there's so much to remember. And, you know, I, I just feel like if you take a, a softer, more gentler approach and, and you, you're able to ask them not only a question, but the right type of questions to lead them to obviously an answer. And I think that's one of the arts of coaching really is to get a student to believe that they are doing what they want to do, even though it's your idea, mm. you know? Yeah. And I, I think on, on one of your, on one of your previous podcasts, I believe you were interviewing Louis Taille uh british you know davis cup and, and uh, doubles coach and you know he said we we teach people tennis we don't teach tennis to people and i think if everyone could go back and listen to that podcast there's so much wisdom in that podcast when when he says that uh and and that was that was something to me that that has stuck out i'm like oh he is so right he is spot on I always thought about it, but I could never put it into words. But no, that's so spot on. So I, I, I think it's one of those things where you have to you have to treat them as people, not as tennis players. And I think once you start to understand that, I think the the open door to questioning and the open door to telling uh, will cert, will will clearly present itself because a lot of it too is personality, right? You you work with some kids, and some kids are a little bit more shy and standoffish, and 
maybe when you ask a question, maybe the question's not necessarily formed or formulated in the best way. So all you get are crickets. And then sometimes you ask an adult who might be a little bit more opinionated and they just start going off on it. So you have to know the situation. And I think understanding the situation, it all comes back to who are you teaching? The type of person you're teaching, get to know the person. Once you get to know the person, I think that answer will kind of will, will kind of release itself. But it is it, it is extremely situational. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about the last couple of years for you. I know Sets Consulting, I'm a huge fan of your research on why top athletes fail. I quote you all the time. Uh, so, you know, could you share maybe and, and even some of the, the insights you shared with me off air right before we started this podcast? I, I think it'd be really important for our listeners to hear. Um, could you share a bit of that story? Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for giving me that that time. Uh, yeah, SETS Consulting stands for Specialized Educational Tennis Solutions. And what I've created is a, a business, a, a, a network for coaches uh, to gain help. Not so much the students. I, I've done the player development thing, and that was all fine and hunky-dory. But I really found my passion in helping other coaches. And I want to help coaches in their career, whether it be improving themselves to find a better job. Maybe they're a head pro, they want to be a director of tennis, but also it, it's formulating educational curriculum for coaches, for coaching federations. Um, and also I do work with uh, a few coaches um, on tour, uh, helping them with, with their players. I, I don't necessarily work directly with the player, although I obviously have a good positive relationship with them. I work with the coaches to enhance that coach player relationship, which I think is so often overlooked. And so a lot of people are thinking, oh, you're just going to come in here and you're going to try to take my job and coach my player. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with coaching your tennis player. I want to help you. And I want to help you become a better coach. And I feel like from doing that, um, I've actually been able to positively impact a lot more students because, because when you, when you reach a coach, they have so many students, but when you reach one student, it's only that one student. You don't know where they're going to take that info. So for me, that's been that's been really enjoyable. Um, I did receive a master's in educational leadership from Stanford University. Uh, through that program, I was able to do quite a bit of research. One of my research projects that you kind of referenced earlier was what I called the loser's edge. Uh, it talks about failure, and I interviewed 289 athletes. Um, Olympic athletes, world-class professional athletes, NBA, NHL, uh, collegiate athletes, ATP, WTA tour as well, Olympic gold medalists, and 289 athletes. And I asked them, what was your biggest failure in your athletic career? And you would think 289 athletes, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different sports, you would get this kaleidoscope of answers. and you, you only really got seven consistent answers across the board, just seven. So there's only seven reasons for athletic failure. And I kind of go over that in my, in, my, in my presentation. And it's really fascinating to see just how often these things occur and just how mental and emotional it is. And so that was one of my projects I did, which I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of. It took quite a bit of work and a couple of different cell phone plans because I had to keep upgrading because I had to 
call all of these people uh, and spend spend a lot of time on the phone with them. But um, it was it was enjoyable. But no, Sets Consulting is something that I I kind of launched at the end of 2020, um, which you know was actually I launched it 2019, but I kind of did a full this is me, this is who I am. I did that in March of, of 2020, which was a pretty big month because I, I got married that month. And that's also kind of when the global pandemic took hold. Um, so my timing is impeccable. Um, but uh, I've been I've been doing sets since then, since uh, end of 2019, launch 2020. Um, and it's, it's just been good. I, I've actually, I, I wish I could promote online and do a lot more social media stuff. But to be honest with you, I've just been so busy actually doing the stuff that other people are posting and that I even post. I, 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 I would love to post every day, but it's just word of mouth and I'm on the phone with international clients and it's just so exciting. And they're kind of reaping the, 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 the uh, rewards of, of what I get to do. But yeah, I mean, it, it's coaching education. It's, it's, it's being able to find solutions to problems that coaches have all over the world and being able to even connect them. And wow, I mean, again, I'm so grateful to do that. I'm so grateful that coaches are trusting me in their careers. Um, the, the player-coach relationship is a, is a very fragile and, and sensitive thing. And, and for them to, to trust me with that and to make it even better, I mean, I don't know what greater compliment I can really get. So I think also I was uh... – born with that same curse of enthusiasm. I also got married yeah. in 2020. <laughs> it was a great way to reframe it, is it put a bit of a positive spin on uh, on yes. a, otherwise a difficult year. Uh, too funny. And if I may, only because I know your research off the top of my head, would you mind if I share the top three and then you can expand on them? Absolutely. Go for it. And look at this off the top of my head. Let's see if I get them right. A fear of failure. Uh, negativity and perfectionism. Did I get the top three? We'll, we'll leave everyone else hanging with the, the other five. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's 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 really really good. I'm I, I'm totally impressed. So perfection, right? If, if you look at that, actually, let, let's let's talk about the 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 smoking gun there, which is the fear of failure itself. So the number one reason why athletes fail is because of the fear of it. And so what happens is it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and again, you are going to come up short sometimes, and that's okay. But when you compete at a level of a professional athlete or an Olympic athlete, it is there in your face. I mean, journalists write articles about it, and this is just how it is. But it, it, it's this fear of failure, and it becomes so deeply entrenched in the emotional psyche that all of a sudden when you think about it, it's okay to think about something negative, but the moment you say it, it leaves that mouth. It, it has a life and then it kind of manifests itself. So out of the 289 athletes uh, that I interviewed, 71 of them said that fear of failure uh, was their, their, was the reason for their biggest failure. The next one uh, was negativity, and that's 68. So negativity and fear of failure are very, very close, and they are similar. But uh, 68 of 209 athletes said it was negativity. And we all, unfortunately, know those people where even when you give them a compliment, they will just say, oh, well, yeah, but I did this, this. It's like, just take the compliment, 
you can't be you can't be so negative because trust me, it's a downward spiral. You got to be careful of that. And then the the third highest was uh, perfection, which is fifty four out of two hundred eighty nine athletes. So it's that sense of of perfectionism, and especially in tennis, if you look at the way the tour is, you know, you have a lot of these top juniors that come onto the tour and they're given so much, they're given so much hoopla and, and so much admiration because at juniors, when you're the best in the world, you're winning every week. And then when you get to the pro tour, you can be top 10 in the world and lose every week. How do you handle that? And when you're so used to winning all your matches and being so perfect and, and, and the scoreline is easy and, you know, you, you have all these trophies, what happens when all of a sudden that goes away? Can you really handle that? And then we put so much pressure on ourselves to have to be perfect when we realize if you look at your fellow Aussie, Craig O'Shaughnessy, he has the stats. You're not winning 100 or 90 or 80 or even 70% of the points. You know, you just have to win 51% of the points. And the best three players in the world, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, have won 55% of the points. And then you look at someone like Andy Murray. He's won 53%, but there's a huge gap. There's 17 Grand Slam difference between them. And, and, and then you look at someone who is in the top 10 for, say, six years, like a Thomas Burdick. He's won 50%. And he was top 10 in the world. So you start to see that it, tennis is not a game of perfection. It's a game of percentages. Um, and you, you go that across really all sports, except for maybe things like gymnastics, where you really get scored based on a perfect 10. Um, but for a lot of times, it's this perfection that kind of manifests itself, then it all just falls apart. And I, I share this story in my presentation about the loser's edge, where I interviewed a football player, and he had a very specific routine. And this is very big for tennis players, too, is, you know, all tennis players have rituals, right? Rafa has his water bottles and all this stuff. And it's a sense of control, because we're trying to have some sort of control in an uncontrollable world. And so I interviewed this football player and played in the NFL for a bunch of years. Um, and he always had this very specific routine pregame when he would warm up on the field, he would do his stretching and his warmups and, you know, kind of get, get the heart rate up a little bit. In one of the biggest games of his career, he noticed in the end zone, there was a blade of grass that was a little bit higher than all the other blades of grass. At least that's what he thought. That's what he, that's what he thought that he saw. And this one, and he could not get away from focusing on this one little blade of grass. And it turns out he thought about it during warm up and he just, every time he was on the field, he'd be looking at it, he'd be thinking about it. And then what would happen is he actually played one of the worst games of his life. But because he was trying to control everything and be such a perfectionist with everything around him, it ended up costing him and his team uh, a chance at the Super Bowl. Well, I am very eager to continue our conversation. However, mm -hmm. time is uh, is not on our side. Uh, but I'm just so, I think, eager and, and even that story about adaptation and, and how everyone can learn from the loser's edge, how we can learn from failure in the workplace and on the sporting field and, of course, in the tennis world. Is uh is fabulous. So, could I, we wrap up with one last? What you know? What's a piece of advice that you'd love to share with coaches? What's that one thing that you 
really live by that you think if you could share with the rest of the world about coaching, what, what would that be? It's nice to be important. It's more important to be nice. Help people out. Try to, even if you don't have the means or the resources uh, to do it, just try your best. You don't have to help the world, but if you help one person, that could be their world. And um, just continue on this journey. I mean, we're all on this giant rock together, spinning at 11,000 miles per hour, hurling through space at 68,000 miles per hour around this giant flaming fireball. So you know what? Let's just enjoy this ride. Let's let's just be nice. Let's help each other out. Let's just make tennis awesome. Yeah. And the world of coaching, of course. Yes. Uh, people will remember, won't remember what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Kyle, every time I spend time with you, the way you make me feel wants mm. wants me to get up and and learn more and and uh, eager just to be be a coach this afternoon, tomorrow, whenever I'm next. Uh, in front of somebody. So thank you for your time and also shout out to uh, your wife, Lisa. We'd love to have her on the show and all the great work that she's doing. Uh, just do you want to just say a couple of words around her impact? Sure. So my wife, Lisa Puglis-Lacroix, she runs an amazing organization called Love Serving Autism. Um, you can check it out, www.loveservingautism.org. It's an incredible charity uh, that uses tennis as a therapeutic tool to help children and young adults on the autism spectrum. And she's been doing it for five years now. Um, it is her absolute passion. She does it 24-7. Uh, and she has such an incredible story. And I will absolutely get you guys in touch so she can be on this podcast. I think she needs to. I think she'll be one of your, one of your greatest guests ever. Uh, I have no doubts in saying that. Her story is incredible. She was a phenomenal junior tennis player, a phenomenal college tennis player. She played on the tour. And you normally don't see people with that type of background going back in and, and giving that much back to tennis as she has. And to see her skill level uh, with these children and young adults is absolutely special. So please give her a check out on the website. You can follow her on social media as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for your eagerness to learn, listen, and adapt. And, Kyle, I appreciate you. Thank you for making me a better coach. Emma, I appreciate you. Love you so much. Thanks for having me on again. Bye, everybody. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring, and U.S. placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fitness performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four. If you, company, are interested in sponsoring The Coaching Podcast, reach out to info at Emma Doyle dot com dot au i'm gonna ask you on the podcast so sure. that way i don't miss out on any more of your brilliance um of but, course because yeah. i have so many i have so many opinions on this great on this vegemite question it's just i've been <laughs> well funny enough oh my I, gosh i was going to change it up um i was going to oh. start with the coriander i was going to switch it to cilantro okay I was okay, going to well, switch that's... it because you've already answered. So I was going to say that too, switch it up. Okay, well, I mean, you can do that, but I, I still I still want to circle back to this Vegemite question because I'm telling you, this has kept me up at night for the last couple of years. 
And I, I, I think I, I figured it out. I, I've, I've, I've actually done some research. Like I said, I've listened to all your podcasts when yep. you asked that question. And there are some correlations with all of your guests. And I've done, I've done my research. I've actually spoken to doctors about this. Oh, and wow. so it's, 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 it's really good. And I think it'll okay. kind of encapsulate everything that, that you do. Because your question about Benjamin, it's not just a question. It's it, it it touches on on emotions. It touches on memories. It touches on on the physiological state of our bodies. Stop talking. It's so deep. Stop. Okay, stop. I'll shut up. I'll shut up. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>